Hello and welcome back to the Britain and in the early middle ages podcast. This is episode 60, an interview with Rosie from the History Ed podcast about Victorian interpretations of the Vikings. show today I have Rosie from the History Air podcast. We're going, to, we're going to be talking about Viking interpretation and scholarship about the Vikings. We previously talked to Rosie about Celtic and Viking intermixing and what that created. So hello. So the first question I'm going to ask you is What's the outline of what we're talking about? Like, what's the broad scope? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I did my undergrad on the topic of the Vikings and the Victorians, essentially the Victorian perception of the Vikings and how that was shaped. Um, my focus was on Scotland, but today we can kind of broaden that a little bit, hopefully. Okay, so what were the big figures in the Victorian understanding of You cut out. (laughs) Are we still here? Hello. Who are the big figures in the Viking understand in the Victorian understanding of the Vikings? Yes. So I would say um, the ones I had focused on: Samuel Lang, Sir Sir George Webb Dasent or Dissent, I'm not too sure. I'm not British, obviously, um, and William Morris. So when I looked at them, I was able to shape some of the dialogue on what the Victorians were thinking. So if you want, I can kind of jump in and talk a little about about them. Yeah, that'd be good. Okay. Um, So Samuel Lang was actually born in Kirkwall, Orkney in 1780. He had traveled to Norway and Sweden. And at this point, that was the trip that sort of changed his life. He spent three years in Norway from 1834 to 36, which I know is not three years, but it's essentially three years time. Um, And he completed some texts and he was analyzing the different aspects of Norwegian and Swedish cultures. Now, there's a lot of political stuff around his writings in that time. So it's quite interesting to read if you're if you like the political aspect. Um, But his first one that's sort of linked to the Vikings would be in 1844. He translated um, the Chronicle of the Kings of Norway. So it was the first English translation of what's also known as the the Heimskringla. And he also included a discourse on like Old Norse prose. So how it worked and, you know, how you could interpret it and stuff. So that would basically be the broad strokes of Samuel Lang. Um, And then if we look at Sir George Webb Dasent, he was born in 1817 in the British West Indies, sorry. And from uh, 1840 to 1844, he worked in Stockholm as a secretary. So that's another uh, little link there to Scandinavia. And he was also encouraged by Jacob Grimm. Now, I'm not sure if you're very familiar, but 
uh, Jacob Grimm is part of the Grimm brothers. So him and Wilhelm are known for their, you know, Grimm's fairy tales. So a lot of the fairy tales we know today are written or, you know, translated by them. And uh, Jacob Grimm was also a philologist. So he created the Grimm's Law, which is known well in philology. And that kind of made descent go into uh, the linguistic aspect and really appreciate the linguist. So two years after he left Stockholm, he published his own version of the prose or the Younger Edda. And he also said, um, like a small dedication to his, what he called his master, quote unquote, Thomas Carlyle. So that's another link too. And after this time, he was publishing quite often all kinds of things. He was uh, the Times editor for 25 years. He also, well, now we're pretty sure it's him, but in Edinburgh's uh, Blackwood magazine, they published his work called Master Thief, a Norse popular tale. And that's quite a well-known tale that he created out of other uh, like Norse things that he knew. And then he also worked with, um, I'm going to have a hard time with the pronunciation, so I apologize, uh, Guthbrander Vikfusen. He was also a philologist, but he was a Scandinavian philologist. And he they wanted to create the Icelandic dictionary. So during this time of him working with Vikfusen, he also published an Icelandic saga, which you might have actually heard of, uh, the story of Burnt Njal. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite a popular saga. So he was, you know, the first one, I believe, to publish this Icelandic saga in English. He also had in the saga piece that he did, um, he had a very long introduction and lots of appendices, detailed maps. And he made them, it, it made it such that it wasn't just the story. It was almost like a compendium of Icelandic culture and history and literature that was through the eyes of the Victorian, of course. Um, but quite interesting to look at and to study. So this book was actually uh, really, really popular, and it was reprinted until the 20th century. So that's quite the feat. He also went to Iceland in 1862, and then four years later, he translated Gisli the Outlaw, which is also a well enough known book. And in 1894, he published the Icelandic Sagas book. So that's, you know, he was very prolific. He's well known for some of the translations he's done. Uh, and I guess we can do William Morris. So most Brits probably are very familiar with William Morris. He was born in 1834 and he's recognized for, you know, his designs, his tapestries, wallpaper, fabrics, furniture, uh, stained glass windows. But he also has another side and he was very interested in lang languages and Icelandic culture. So in 1869, he published the saga of Gunlag the Wormtongue and Raffin the Skald. He also published, like very shortly after, uh, Gredir the Strong. But the one that most people are, you know, have connected him with would be the Volsunga saga. So the story of the Volsungs and the Nibelungs, which are sort of, um, you know, also well-known enough sagas. I'm, I'm sure you're also familiar with that. And... He also, oh yeah, he traveled to Iceland and he really made a point to visit these sort of saga locations or what he thought were the saga locations. So he really did love the Volsung sagas and the stories, the stories, you know, of Sigurd and all of that. So that was his main 
his main love, let's say. So there's many other authors and translators, but those are the three that I kind of focused on and deep dived in um, to see how they interpreted the Vikings during that time. Yeah. Okay, what I was going to ask was, what would have been the popular image of the Vikings? How would people in the Victorian era have really perceived them? Yeah, well, there's a popular image that most people today do associate to Vikings, and that would probably be the horn helmet, right? <laughs> that seems to be the very uh, common thing. So most people understand that a horn helmet would have been extremely inconvenient in battle. I feel like that would be very much in the way. Um, and scholars say that they would probably, the helmets would have been uh, like a conical shape, conically shaped, and made from yeah. leather rather than copper or iron because metal was extremely expensive. But if we look back to the Victorians, we can see that the first use for horn helmets that we know of is from the Wagnerian opera. So the Ring of the Nebulon, which it uses sort of Sigurd and Ragnarok, and it's a really big production. Um, they created sort of this Germanic mythology, right? So if we look back to the Victorian era again, um, in 1876, the Beiruth production, I'm probably uh, mispronouncing again, I apologize, um, but the costume designer, Carl Emil Doppler, he added cow horns to the character of Hunding. And that's kind of where that inspiration started. From there, uh, many adaptations sprung. And in the 1880s, there was just, there, was, there were horned helmets everywhere when it came to Vikings and Viking mythology and all of that. So some of them also had wings, you might have seen that, but some had yeah. very much intricate type of helmets with the horns, you know, like twisted horns or double horns or whatnot. And you can find some uh, intricate ones sort of in that time uh, would be in the Tristan and his old operas. Like you would see those. And the visual cues were really, really big for Viking and horn helmets. And there were even children's book books during the Victorian era that had the horn helmets as a visual cue. There, um, uh, something that was really fascinating when I was looking into this was that R.M. Ballantyne, he uh, translated or wrote Airing the Bold. And the drawings were done by the author. So he had drawings on like the frontispiece and it didn't have horns on it, but it was done before the whole, you know, horn helmet rage. But by the ninth edition of this book, which was in 1890, it was very prominent that there's a horn helmet on that front piece. So just to show, just to show you, you know, with subsequent editions, how it became really prevalent. Another yeah. And another thing that I found really interesting, too, was artwork. So the uh, Dixie, Frank Dixie painted a large piece called A Funeral of a Viking. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's quite lovely. It's very striking, actually. Yeah, I think yeah, probably. It's very striking. And uh, this had a, a warrior wearing the horn helmet and sort of like a, maybe a wolf fur or something like that. And the Viking funeral in question has a large ship that's burning and like being pushed out into sea. Well, that was very uh, prominent in Britain. The painting actually had a place of honor in the Great Room at the Royal Academy in 1893. So it, it was quite appreciated at the time. So I, th I thought those were sort of the main things that were very interesting.
So, could the Victorians, were the Vikings heroes or villains? How did they perceive them in relation to the English? Mm-hmm. To the people? That's a tricky question. But when, you know, I'm again, I'm not British. So, <laughs> you know, people might uh, have a harder time when it comes from somebody who's Canadian. But it seemed as though the Victorians really wanted to be linked to the Norse, to the Scandinavian. They thought, so it seems, they thought that the Scandinavians were sort of that really pure, hardworking, you know, very romantic vision. It's a, There's a big romanticism that was attached to a lot of these translations and even the way they translated and um, looked at them. Okay, so what were the big breakthroughs in kind of Viking studies during the era? You've already talked about the important things, mm-hmm. but what did we really learn? What came to be understood during the era because I know that uh, a lot the Victorian era was was a flourishing of history Mm -hmm. as a study so how did that affect our knowledge of Vikings? Well I mean there was definitely the idea that the word Viking became extremely popular you know that would be one thing Um, there's a few there's a few really neat things too like uh, the festivals so there's a festival that many people now might be familiar with that's called the Uphelia Festival in Shetland, which is usually on the last Tuesday in January every year. Um, that actually started, it dated pre-Victorian, but it wasn't quite the same thing. So it was in 1689 and it was called the Burning of the Clavi. So this is quite an interesting tradition. They would have a barrel of tar and they would mount it on a pole and then set it aflame. Now, anybody who's even has like an idea of setting tar aflame on a pole. I feel like that's really dangerous. Um, yeah. yeah, but they followed a specific route with, you know, a master of ceremonies and it was essentially like a parade. So this is, you know, in this six, 1689. So it's a little before the Victorian era, but the embers from the barrel would be given out to the townsfolk and they would, you know, that would be for good luck. So you can imagine the mess uh, on the streets of this tar everywhere, you know, on doorsteps, and then just the fact that they're holding the tar barrel, I feel like there would be many injuries too. So that eventually died out. But in 18, in the yeah 1870s, about there, there was this thing that they called like a torchlight procession. So it it was in it was to replace this tar burning. And by 1881, they were following the same route as what the Clavi route, the Clavi festival had followed, but they also wore masks, which was sort of a new thing. And that one was what we now consider to be sort of the first Uphelia festival. So they shifted the dates because it used to be celebrated um, on the Julian calendar's new year, which is sort of the January 10th or 11th of the year. And that's when they changed it to the, the last Tuesday of January. Um, and in 1889, the Duke of Edinburgh actually came to Shetland and participated somehow. Now, that was in uh, Victorian newspapers. You can look all this up if you have access to these papers. So it's quite interesting to read about it. They also created uh, the replica of the Viking longship in 1889 when the Duke of Edinburgh was there. They had a high stem and stern, and then they sort of had like, quote unquote, dragon style, you know, Viking. <laughs> um, they used a raven on the main yeah. mast. And... And from then on, too, they started using sort of more Viking terminology or Norse terminology, Scandinavian terminology. 
they would have what's called like geysers, so like a geyser jarl, and he was in charge of the whole festival. And the committee would plan for a year. I mean, even now I've heard that the planning is intense. So I'm guessing since the Victorian era, the, the planning of this festival has been essentially the same, you know, you would have intense planning. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's probably all we have time for today, mainly because I can't think of much else to ask you. So thank you for coming on. It was very informative. I have one more thing if you want it. Okay. Okay. Can you <laughs> yeah, that? I can, I can uh, tell you. So, th well, there's two things. So one was um, there was a club that was formed and it's still on today. Like we still know about it today and people still join today. And there's also some archaeological things that happened in that time, you know, that really define the Vikings. So those are like two little things if you want. Okay, great. So could you please talk about the archaeology a bit before we finish? Off? Sure. Um, the archaeology, as many people know, in the Victorian era was sort of this flourishing field. A lot of people really wanted to make it scientific. So in 1850, Scarab was uncovered after a violent storm. And during this excavation, there was the archaeologist called uh, James Ferrer. And he had heard about what's called a tumulus, sort of like this bump. And it was near the stone of Stennis. So we're talking about Orkney. And actually, he's the one that uh, was the first one to discover, not really discover, but to un <laughs> unearth, I guess. And it's the one uh, that people know as Maze Howe today. So he helped uncover that. And the burial mound is prehistoric, but there were additions from the 12th century. So on the walls, there was some runic writing, which runes would be the Norse alphabet. And there were 33 inscriptions discovered at that time and that, that they knew about. And he worked with different, um, he worked with this antiquarian called George Petrie, who's also well known in the Victorian era. And he drew some of the runes. So then they sent him covertly. They didn't talk about it. He didn't publish it. He wanted to make sure that he had all the information before he wrote his book. So he, they kind of sent these runes covertly to three professors. So there was uh, Munch, he was in Christiania and George Stevens and uh, Carl Christian Raffin, who were both in Copenhagen. So they gave their translations and then he ended up publishing a book with that information. There was also an idea that this was Norse because the drawings near the runes were sort of Scandinavian styling, right? You have this snake slash dragon, you know, that kind of thing. And they had many people trying to figure out if this mound itself was Viking. For a long time, they did think it was Viking, but you know, we've now, we now know it's not. There were also many brooches or brooches that were discovered. So there was uh, six in the Hebrides, three in the Orkneys, one in Shetland, two in Caithness and two in Sutherland. And the really interesting part of some of these brooches was that there's a mix of the Celtic and Norse elements, like the, uh, Eligari, I think that's how you say it, but that place in Bera, it had runes and it had sort of this Celtic chain on the other side. So that was a nice little discovery they did in the Victorian era. And then of course there's the Gottstad ship in Norway. So in 1880, it was discovered. The burial chamber had been plundered. So there was no weapons or personal items, but they still had 12 horses, a peacock, six dogs, three boats, a sled, a bed, household goods, and then textile, probably from the sails. The Gothside ship was 
just such a big discovery and the Victorians in Britain just loved it. They actually built a replica three years later at, um, and they presented it at the Archaeological Society of Glasgow. And then in 1893, a life-size replica was built of the Gokstad ship. And then in February, it, le it left um, Norway, it sailed to New York, and it was trying to get to Chicago's World Fair. So it actually passed by Britain, it passed, you know, by Fair Isle and Shetland. And in June, it did arrive to New York, which is just crazy. Um, and again, the Victorian newspapers like the Aberdeen Press and Journal had a lengthy article on how it arrived in North America, which is quite interesting. So, you know, some of this archaeology, there's so much more, but very interesting time for the Victorians and the Vikings and the way they found more information about it anyway. Yeah, and of course, it proves that the, Viking, the Vikings could have made it to North America. Yeah, which yeah, it does. Which be true because we found the evidence of longhouses. Yes, oh, China. absolutely. Yeah, in Newfoundland, yeah. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Henry. This was really fun. Okay, great. Thank you. It was really good, yeah. Yeah, was that what you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> okay, So. Cool. Goodbye. Yes, until later. <laughs> See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Remember to follow me on Twitter, where I'm at with Pod. Please also follow the Twitter for my upcoming podcast from Finland to the Volga. That's at Finland to Volga. We also have a community Discord server, which will be linked in the description. If you want to support the show, you can make a monthly donation via Patreon for as little as $1 a month, or one off donation via PayPal. Both help me keep producing these episodes every week, so every supporter has my deepest thanks. If you don't have money to spare, or just don't want to donate, please leave a review for the show via our podcast, or wherever else you can. Listener feedback is always really motivating, and positive reviews also help more people find the show. Please also tell your family and friends what you think about the show, if you think they'd be interested. If I've got anything wrong or just want to give me some feedback, you can email me at historyofbritishisles at gmail.com. Big thank you to all my patrons, and in particular my two Duke slash Duchess tier patrons, Anita Cardoni and Stephen Reinish. Thank you all for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>